I am so excited for this podcast, more excited for this podcast than maybe any other one that I've done. I think this is a good case that this is the most important Parsha podcast in the five years and the 288 episodes of the Parsha podcast. And I want to say boldly, maybe a bit foolishly as well, that maybe this is the most important podcast of any podcast in history. That is indeed a bold claim, but listen to it. And afterwards, you tell me if there is merit to that quite sensational and maybe even a touch bombastic claim. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. So this week is Parsha's Toldos, and we meet an unlikely set of twins. Of course, we have Jacob, who's going to become the forefather of the Jewish people, the successor to Abraham and to Isaac, one of the great heroes of Jewish history. In fact, the eponymous forefather of the Jewish people, he's going to be called Israel. And his twin brother, his older brother, Esav, Esav, the villain, Esav, one of the worst people in history. He wants to murder Jacob even, terrible guy, and he is the twin brother. And it's very interesting to study these two people, these two siblings, these two brothers, these two twins. And specifically to study how does someone like Esau come from Isaac, from Rebecca, from such a holy background, how does someone like Esau emerge to become such a terrible person? So let's start with chapter 26, verse 34. This is right before the episode of the blessings where Isaac wants to give a blessing to Esau, his older son, and Rebecca orchestrates a heist when Jacob impersonates Esau and he comes and he steals the blessings. But right before that, we read the following verse, chapter 26, verse 34. Esau was 40 years old and he married. He married a woman by the name of Yehudis, Bas Be'eri, a woman named Basmas, Bas Elon. It's a very intriguing Rashi. What does Rashi say here? Rashi says, Esav is comparable to a pig. Quotes a verse in, in Psalms, Yichar Semenu Chazir Miyar. Why is Esav comparable to a pig? Because when a pig lies down, it spreads out its hooves as if to say, look, I am pure. So too, the people of Esav, Esav's people, they steal and they plunder, but they present themselves as if they are kosher. For 40 years, Esav would snatch women from their husbands and would assault them and would oppress them. But when he turned 40, he said, hey, my father Isaac, when he was 40, he got married. So you know what? I'm 40. I also should get married right now. What an interesting teaching in Rashi. Esav is like a pig. Now we know that there are two signs needed to make an animal kosher. It has to have split hooves and it has to chew its cud. And there are four animals and only four animals that have one but not the other. And the pig is the one animal that has split hooves but does not chew its cud. And therefore it's strafe, it's not kosher. However, Rashi tells us that the nature of the pig is to try to accentuate 
and to try to amplify and to show the world to publicize its one kosher credential. So when it lies down, it spreads out its front feet as if to show the whole world, look, I'm kosher. But Rashi, based upon the Midrash, explains that it's falsely portraying itself as kosher. Look at me. I have split hooves and I'm kosher. When, of course, it's not because it doesn't chew its cud. And we're told here that Esav is like a pig. Totally unkosher, but trying to pass himself off as if he was really righteous. And he starts mimicking his father's external behavior, despite Esav's gross moral depravity. Esav says, oh, my father gets married at 40. I'm also going to get married at 40. I'm just as holy as Isaac. The truth is, Esav is a total womanizer. He's a philanderer. He's a promiscuous person. But he tries to pass himself off as kosher, like a pig. Okay, so here's where it gets interesting. The pig, the animal with split hooves that does not chew its cud, that's not the only animal that Esav is compared to in the Sitz Parsha. Chapter 25, Jacob is making a red lentil stew and Esav arrives from the field and he's tired and he tells Yaakov, Jacob, he tells him, Halitainina, give me some to eat from this very, very red food because I'm very tired. And that's why we're told he is called Edom. Edom means red and he said this red, red thing and therefore he's called Edom. But what does it mean, halitena, give me to eat? It's a very unusual word. Says Rashi, what does it mean, halitena? I will open up my mouth. That's what Esav is saying. I will open up my mouth and you will pour a lot of this red stew into my mouth. And then continues Rashi. As we see in the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, it tells us that on Shabbos, you are not allowed to force feed a camel, but you are allowed to Feed it by pouring it into its mouth. And the word that the Talmud uses is malitin. The same word over here, halitani, malitin. It's a word, it's a verb that describes how camels are normally fed. So when Esav comes in from the field and he's hungry and he says, feed me, says Rashi, what he's in effect saying is feed me like a camel. Now what an amazing thing. In addition to being compared to the pig, Esav is being compared to the camel as well. Now, what do we know about the camel? Well, it's one of the three animals that we're told that chew its cud, but don't have split hooves, and therefore they have one of the signs of being kosher, but not the other. And our sages note that the pig has the split hooves, spreads it out for all to see, and the camel has the opposite. The hooves are not split, but it does rechew its cud. And how does it rest? If you ever see a camel resting, it folds its feet under itself and it spreads its neck out. So it's the opposite. It says, hey, look at me. I chew my cud. Even though the fact that it's not kosher due to the fact that the hooves are not being split, that it's hidden under it. So both these animals are trying unsuccessfully to accentuate their kosher credentials. And we see, interestingly, that Esav, in our parsha, is being compared to both of them. 
But what do we do with this discovery? What is the significance that Asaph is compared to the pig that only has a split hoofs and to the camel that only chews its cud? So here is what I want to suggest. Asaph had the ability to become kosher. He had both the split hooves and he had the quote-unquote cud chewing. He had all the tools, all the ingredients, all the puzzle pieces to become kosher, to become holy, to become pure, but he just couldn't put it all together to actualize his potential. His problem was not one of ability. He had the ability. He had all the ingredients to become holy, to become kosher. His problem was that he didn't find a way to make his different abilities work together, become synchronized to result in being kosher, being holy. If only Asaph had managed to find a way to get the different pieces working in concert, he could have taken his split hoofs and his cud chewing, so to speak, the two components needed to become kosher, had he married them together, indeed, he would have been a wonderful finished product. But he didn't do it. His abilities were disjointed. His disparate kosher parts were not working in tandem as one, and therefore he remained non-kosher. And sadly, he developed into the terrible villain that he became. Now, we have already mentioned in the past the following provocative idea. When Esav was killed by the deaf grandson of Jacob, he was decapitated and his head rolled into the cave. So my grandfather used to always say that his head, his cognitive capacities, was just like the rest of the people interred there, i.e. just like the forefathers. But his problem was that it didn't penetrate his body. He could have become great. He could have become as great as Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. There could have been four. Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and Asaph. He could have been that fourth link in the chain. He could have become great, but because he did not execute effectively, we have this terrible, tragic result. Asaph just didn't put it all together and is ultimately a terrible failure. But let's go a step deeper. Why indeed did Asaph fail? Why couldn't he marshal all his forces together to become the fourth father of our people? Why was his head spiritually unconnected to his body? What was the flaw that prevented him from actualizing his potential? So let's explore that question. And when we study A7 in the Parsha, this really is not a shortage of flaws. In fact, there's a smorgasbord of flaws that Asav exhibits. But what I want to do is I want to try to find the alpha flaw, the tent pole flaw, the keystone flaw, the flaw that led to all the other flaws, the mothership of all the flaws that caused Asav to not actualize his potential, to not take all the gifts, all the tools, all the abilities that he was given 
and made something out of himself. So, of course, we read about Asaph and we see flaws the entire story. Just him being born, that very dramatic story of him being born. Even beforehand, the very unusual morning sickness of Rebecca, we're told that whenever she passed by a house of idolatry, Asaph began to stir. He wanted to be born. He had a drive towards idolatry that began even before he was born. And then once he's born, he's, he's, a, he's a fiery redhead. Rashi says that's a sign that he's going to become a murderer. And he's very hairy. And the Kabbalists explain that what that means is that every sin is going to get trapped in him. And then we read how Asaph matures. He's now 13 years old. He's a young man. And he knows how to do trapping. Says Rashi, what does that mean? He knows how to trap and deceive his father. He was deceptive. He was someone who was always tricking his father to make him believe, to give off the false impression that Asav was really righteous. And he was also a man of the field. Says Rashi, what does that mean? He was idle. He was not someone who was contributing towards the advancement of society. So again, we see flaw after flaw after flaw. Again, Rashi tells us, Asaph comes back from the field and he's tired. What does it mean he's tired? Says Rashi, with murder. When the Torah calls someone tired, it means that they're spiritually tired. They're spiritually weakened. Why was Asaph spiritually weakened? Because he had done the most unconscionable of sins, taking someone else's life. And he goes to Jacob and he says, quite gluttonously, stuff me with food. And he's acting with coarseness. He's not subtle. He's not nuanced. He says, give me this red, red, red stuff. Give me the Edom, the really red thing. He's behaving in a very coarse manner. And then Jacob says, I'll give it to you. We have to sell your birthright. And he says, okay, well, what do I need the birthright? I'm going to die anyhow. He's short-sighted. He's impetuous. Again, we see flaw after flaw. And we're looking for the flaw that prevented Asaph from becoming great, that precluded him from taking all the pieces that he had and making something special, like what he could have been the fourth installment of the patriarchs. And then continuing the parsha, we read about the episode of the usurpation of the blessings. It too is likewise chock full of examples of Asaph's flaws. When he finds out that his brother stole the blessings, Asav erupts with explosive anger. He has envy against his brother. He promises vengeance. He plots to murder his own brother. We read Asav's story and there is a complete, unending, continuous litany of character flaws, of character shortcomings, and it's not immediately clear what is the tentpole what is the flaw that was the linchpin in preventing Asav from achieving his potential? But I want to make the following suggestion. I want to suggest that maybe we can identify what the alpha flaw was that prevented Asav from being the fourth forefather. What was the thing that ultimately prevented him from actualizing his potential. So like this, when Jacob 
is making the stew, and Asaph comes in, and Asaph wants some stew. So Jacob says, I'll give it to you, but sell your firstborn, your birthright. Sell that to me. So what does Asaph respond? This is chapter 25, verse 32. Behold, I'm going to die, and what do I need it for? What do I need it for? Give me the food. So simply put, that means he's so hungry, I'm going to die anyhow. It's worthwhile for me. I'm at this state where if I don't eat right now, I'm going to die, and therefore the most important thing in the world is food. That's what you would think if you just read the verse without Rashi. Let's look at what Rashi says. Rashi gives us a peek behind the curtains, as he always does, to understand what the dialogue really is about. This birthright, certainly at that time in history, contained the right to do service in the tabernacle and the temple. And Jacob said to Esav, give me that right, sell me that right, and I'll be the firstborn, I'll do the work in the temple, and you won't. So Esav responds, well, okay, tell me more. What does it mean to do work, to do service in the temple? What is the nature of this kind of work? So Jacob responds that there are many laws. There's many prohibitions. There's many warnings. There's many instances where if you go wrong, it could actually be a capital offense. And he gives him some examples. If there's a Kohen or someone who is a priest who's working in the temple and they come in and they're drunk or they have long hair, they haven't cut their hair within 30 days, that is actually an executable offense. And that's some of the laws. That's what it means to be the firstborn, to have the birthright. So Asaph says, if so, I'm going to die. What do I need it for? Asaph is totally discounting the value of the birthright because it's going to kill him. And why is it going to kill him? Because drunks and long-haired people who serve are executed. So what? What's the problem? Avoid drinking beforehand. Get a haircut once a month. Simple. Why does Asa view these laws as a death sentence to him if he was the firstborn? I think we've discovered the critical flaw in Asav. Asav had a thing for alcohol and long hair. And in his mind, that was unchangeable. And therefore, Asaph says, if this is the criteria of being the firstborn, I'm dead. I'm a dead man walking. I can't possibly change. This is who I am. I need to have my gym beam. I need to have my drink. I need to have my lawn hair. It's kind of my style. To be someone who serves in the temple, the tabernacle, you have to have short, neatly cropped hair. And you can never drink or you can't drink right before you walk in. Impossible for me. I'm dead. It's not worth it for me. Here you go. Take the firstborn right. It's yours. The word esav in Hebrew means finished, done. Esav, his essence or his essential problem was that he didn't believe that he was dynamic, that he was changeable. What it is 
is what it is. This is as good as it gets. What you see is what you get. I can't change. I am who I am. Asav believed that he was a finished product. He believed in what's known as a fixed mindset. And therefore, in his head, he's an alcoholic or he needs to drink every day and he has to have his long hair and that can change. And therefore, the only way for things to continue in the event that he would retain the birthright is he would die. Can't change. Asaph is unchangeable. That's how he viewed himself. But the truth is, that was not true. That was an error. He was indeed, Asaph was born loaded with flaws. But guess what? He had the tools to fix it. He had the camel tools. He had the pig tools. He could have put it together and become holy and actualize his potential and become the fourth link in the chain. But he had a fatal flaw that prevented him from putting it all together. He didn't believe that he could change. He was Asaph. It's done. It's static. It's unchangeable. And that was his downfall. And here's the final clincher. There was a second Asaph. Actually, there may have been even more. We're told in the advanced commentaries that actually Joseph was like Asaph. Rashi Ray tells us that Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, was also a reincarnation of Asaph. But listen to this. King David was also like Asaph. In fact, the commentaries note that there is a word that appears only twice in Scripture. The word is Admoni, which means redhead, which Rashi told us that's a portent that someone's going to be a murderer. It appears only twice. With the birth of Asav, he was Admoni, he was a redhead, he was a murderer. And it appears the second time, the first time we meet King David, who's not quite king yet. Samuel, this is the book of Samuel 1, 16, 12. Samuel is told by God, one of Jesse's sons is going to replace Saul as king. And he goes to Jesse's house and tries to find the candidate and all of Jesse's sons are not the one. But there's another one. There's a son that his own family members don't believe that that he has the ability. But Samuel says, nonetheless, bring him here. So they bring him. And the first description that we have, the first word told us in Scripture about David, Vuhu Admoni. He is an Admoni. He's a redhead. The exact word that appears, again, only one other place in Scripture with respect to Asaph. But the verse continues. Im Yefeinayim. He was a redhead, an Admoni, like Asaph, with beautiful eyes. Vitovri, in good appearance. And the Midrash in this week's parsha tells us that when Samuel saw David, he was worried. He says, wait a minute, this looks like a total replica of Asaph. He's going to be a murderer like Asaph. But God said to him, no, he has beautiful eyes. Asaph was a murderer and killed on his own volition. David's going to be a murderer, but he's going to use the eyes, i.e. the eyes of the nation, namely the Sanhedrin, and only with the authority and jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin will he murder. I want to suggest another way 
to look at this, maybe to frame this a little bit differently. David was an Admoni like Asaph, both redheads. David was a murderer like Asaph. But unlike Asaph, David believed in the concept of change. He was an Admoni with beautiful eyes. He was full of flaws like Asaph, but he had great eyes, great vision. Unlike Asaph, David could envision a better future for himself. He had great eyes. He could see himself in the future being different than the way he is now, at present time. His eyes allowed him to believe that change is possible. He was a carbon copy of Asaph, with one exception. They were both Admoni. They were both redheads. They were both murderers. But David had Yefei and I'm, he had beautiful eyes. He believed in the capacity to change. And that is the only thing that separated the two, but that is the sole prerequisite to indeed change. And indeed, of course, David is one of the heroes of the Jewish people. Kabbalistically, we're told David is the fourth forefather. And of course, his prayers, his repentance, everything about David is all screaming change. David, of course, is the author of the sentence, Evan Moasu Abonim, there was a stone that was reviled by the builders, but it became the keystone. He was someone who was reviled. He was someone who was discounted, someone who no one believed could become anything. And when the prophet saw him, he saw Asaph. But ultimately, what happened? He became the keystone. He became the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He actualized his potential because he had those beautiful eyes. He had the ability to change. And indeed, there are four entrants into the chariot of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the three forefathers. And you know who else is there? David. He too is on that pantheon. What an insight. Esau had all the tools to overcome his innate flaws. He had the split hooves and the quote-unquote cud chewing, but he failed because he was unable to see himself in a different light. He could not envision himself being better. He could not envision himself being different than the way he is right now. And therefore, his head and his head alone was buried in the cave of the patriarchs. The rest of him was just not meritorious. He's this great what if of history. What if Asav would have marshaled it all together? He would have indeed been the fourth of the patriarchs. If only he believed in the concept of change. David did have that vision. But Asav was just the Admoni. He was just the bad character without the beautiful eyes, the beautiful vision, and he failed. And by the way, just to round this out, we are told that David is a reincarnation of Adam. 
Thus, in effect, David, along with the three other forefathers, is also interred in the cave of the patriarchs. All four of those people, plus the head of Asav, indeed make the final cut. I think there's a very powerful lesson here for all of us. This is something that I believe in very, very, very strongly. Every one of us, I'm talking to myself, I'm talking to everyone I know, I'm talking to everyone listening, and everyone who's listening, everyone you know, I think that it applies equally to all of us. All of us are like Asaph. We are all given all the tools to become great ourselves. Of course, everyone's different. Everyone has different personalities. We've spoken about this at length. Everyone has different characteristics, different abilities. They might want something different from every individual. But every person can actualize that potential, is given whatever tools that person particularly needs to achieve that person's particular destiny. We all have flaws, but we all have the tools, the proverbial split hooves and cud-chewing abilities to be able to do that. But the necessary prerequisite, critical necessary thing is that we have to believe the change is possible. And I think in this area, this is where people fail, in my opinion. This is where everyone goes wrong. Or not everyone, a lot of people go wrong. Most people, from my anecdotal experiences, they don't actually believe in the capacity of change. They don't believe it. And of course, People won't say this, but that's how people behave. There is a certain assumption that this is the way it is, and everyone is doomed to stay the way they are forever. And that's absolute nonsense. It's malarkey. It's hogwash. We all can change. We all can actualize our potential. But the first thing we need is that vision of David, those beautiful eyes, the ability to look into the future and see a better version of ourselves down the road. Now, I do have a tabalistic addendum to this idea that, please God, I'm going to include in tomorrow's email newsletter. It's just a bit too spicy, or as we say in Yiddish, a bit too schmaltzy for the podcast, but I do intend to include it in the email newsletter tomorrow. And if you're not on the email list, go to rabbitwoman.com forward slash newsletter and you can sign up. Okay, let us go to this week's A and Q. I feel like we should get a jingle for the podcast, but I don't know how to do that. It's too complicated. But imagine there was a jingle here or at least a drum roll. Now, this question is courtesy of my dear friend, Mark Cantor. And he points out that there's something very surprising in this week's partial. Very surprising behavior that is seemingly unbecoming of Jacob. And that is that Jacob impersonates his brother, has to lie or at least get really close to lying a bunch of times and steals the blessings intended or air-marked for his brother. 
Now, the preliminary question is, well, what justification does Jacob have to steal the blessings? Isn't that a crime? I think that's the preliminary question. But you could always argue, well, it wasn't Jacob. He was he was really doing his mother's bidding. He was, in fact, resistant to doing it. And his mother, you could say, well, she was just trying to actualize, to bring to fruition the prophecy that was foretold to her that Esau is going to be dominated by Jacob. But here's the deeper question. Why did the Almighty orchestrate it in a way that... Jacob ended up with these blessings through this shady, chicanerous, circuitous, un-Jacob-like way. Surely there are other ways he could have ended up with these blessings. There's all kinds of ways you could imagine to make the blessings go to Jacob without him and his mother doing this very shady-looking heist. What if, for example, God or the prophet told Isaac that Jacob is going to dominate Esau, just like Rebecca was told? Well, end of story. Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob, and Esau doesn't have all this hatred, and really, human history, Jewish history, ends up very differently. Why not give it to Jacob in a less problematic, and a less questionable way? It's almost as if it had to have happened in this problematic way. And the question is, why? And as always, you can email me, rabbiwalbajima.com. Okay, last week we asked two questions in our A&Q session. Question number one was, why was Ephron, who wasn't, not only wasn't righteous, he was actually a portrait of bad character, how did he end up with the holiest real estate the parcel of land of the cave of the patriarchs. Question number one. Question number two, the Midrash points out that there's three places that are bought with money in, in, in scripture, and that is Jerusalem, bought by David, Shechem, the suburbs of Shechem that were bought by Jacob, and the cave of the patriarchs that was bought by Abraham. And the question is, what is the significance of these three places in particular? I want to read to y'all an answer that was sent in by a listener named Sam. It was written so well. He did such a good job that I'm just going to read what he said verbatim. So to answer the first question, he said as follows, quote, The land containing the cave of the patriarch was owned by Ephron instead of a holy man or even just a normal man because holiness must be drawn out of wickedness. Noah was great in his time, at least in part because of his contemporaries' wickedness. Lot had to be brought out of the most wicked city. Moses sprung himself from Egypt, a den of idolatry and sin. And then Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt. Ruth was righteous despite her unsavory lineage. And here's the line, holiness, whether in a place or a person or a people, is repeatedly delivered from wickedness and Sin. So that's the answer that Sam wrote in. And I think he hit the nail on the head. And this is a major theme in Jewish philosophy that the, the, that the good and the bad are so intermixed. Sometimes the best good is trapped in the worst bad. And part of, so to speak, the national mission of the Jewish people is to try to extract this good out of the bad. Now I want to point out that there are at least two ways to explain it. There's one way to explain it, 
you know, this idea, this phenomenon of the bad and the good being so interwoven, there's one way to explain it, that the potentially holy are targeted by the Yetzirah. Meaning Ephron, because he had this gem, that's why he became evil, because he became a target. That's one way to explain it. Alternatively, there's the idea that since the sin of Adam, all holiness, all goodness is concealed, is buried, is hidden in the darkness, in, so to speak, a facade of evil, and that's just the nature of, of goodness. Very powerful idea. I think it's something we'll probably encounter again. Now, with respect to the second question, Sam also gave what I thought was a very stellar answer. I want to read it here again verbatim. The three parcels of land purchased in the Tanakh are not the only parcels to change hands in the Tanakh. Most of the land acquired by the Israelites or Hebrews is acquired by force of arms. So the question is, why can mundane places be conquered, but holy places cannot? These places are holy, exceedingly holy. But there appears to be no problem with shedding the blood of sacrificial animals, at least at the Temple Mount. So the rule appears to be that human blood should not be shed in these places. Considering humans are made in God's image, this makes sense. One should not disgrace God in a holy place. So these three places must be purchased because they cannot be conquered through violence. I have always said that the Parsha Podcast listeners are the best audience in the podcast universe. And this stellar answer by a listener named Sam is another testament to that idea. Thank you so much, Sam. As always, my email address is rabbiwobajima.com. If you want to subscribe to the newsletter, rabbiwobajima.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. Have an amazing Shabbos, a fantastic rest of your week. And please, God, we look forward to speaking to y'all next week.